Hello, my name is Steve Bloomfield and this is How to Fix, the weekly podcast from Prospect where we try to fix some of the country's and the world's most pressing problems. This week, refugee camps. Right now, there are 65.6 million people around the world who've been forcibly displaced. That's roughly equivalent to the population of Britain. Of those, more than 20 million are refugees, and of those, less than 200,000 were resettled last year in another country. So what about the rest? Well, many of them are in camps. We think of the refugee camp as a temporary structure, a place of tents and well-meaning aid workers in white t-shirts handing out food and medicine. And at first, they can be. But as the weeks turn into months and the months into years and the years into decades and refugees still can't go home, they're left in limbo. The aid often dries up, the camps become dangerous, solutions are thin on the ground. So, can refugee camps be fixed? Should they even actually exist? Because camps are actually more or less illegal. Under the Refugee Convention, you're supposed to allow refugees the right to move and live in the society on equal terms with the people amongst whom they've sought asylum. We'll head to Berlin to speak to the former head of a camp for Syrian refugees who has an innovative plan for turning refugee camps into cities. And we'll speak to the author Ben Rawlins about his experiences in Dadaab camp in northern Kenya. But first, here's prospect Stephanie Boland. Hi, Steph. Hi, Steve. Um, Let's start then with whose responsibility it is to look after a refugee, because it's not necessarily straightforward, is it? No, it's a very difficult question. And to add one more number to those numbers, we know from the UN that 10 million people in the world are stateless, which means they don't have a nationality. They don't belong to a state. Many of those people end up in these kind of temporary positions. In fact, the UN says there's one person born every 10 minutes who is stateless. So even before you get to should it be the state's responsibility, you have to ask which state and why. (laughs) Which state's for those 10 million people as well. And I guess there's also then the issue of where people are coming from. So... They will flee from, you know, let's say it's Syria, they will flee to a neighbouring country and those neighbouring countries aren't necessarily that rich or that stable themselves. Right, and this brings us on to the other obligation, which is that, again, according to the UN, states are obliged to take steps to make sure that refugees, including those in camps, have access to essential rights, things like food, water, clothing, basic medical care. But they put in a caveat where they basically say, to the best of your ability. So if you have a sudden influx of people into your country, often the infrastructure breaks down quite quickly. You also have states who don't really want to take on that obligation. I know here in the UK we hear murmurings about the Calais camp, which Mm, is... The jungle. The jungle, which is effectively on the border between France and England. Every so often there's this discussion of when Brexit happens, will it move to being on the other side, to being kind of the Dover camp? We just don't know. But often states sort of want to wash their hands of the responsibility because it is a big responsibility. You say it's a big responsibility, but let's compare the situation here in the UK where we often get very exercised by a few hundred people possibly coming, hopping onto the back of a lorry and going through the Channel Tunnel to get here, where you then have a country like Turkey, which has had three million Syrian refugees in the past five years. Well, this is something, as you'll know from seeing the statistics on foreign stories versus domestic news in a news organisation, sadly, empathy does seem to start to filter out as our geographical reach gets further and further away. There's also the problem of 
camps being kind of a nice solution that can be bundled off somewhere else, yes. right? Yes, because they sort of sound like, oh, it's a refugee camp. We're helping. We heard in the past David Cameron talking about it and Theresa May said something similar of, well, we are maybe not going to accept many people here, but don't worry, we're going to help lots of people in refugee camps over there. Right, and going back to your point of should they even exist at all, we've been warned over and over again in political and philosophical discourses that this is a really risky situation to put ourselves in. If we think of somebody like the philosopher Hannah Arendt, who herself was displaced and had to move to America as a Jewish refugee, she says, you know, this becomes the routine solution rather than interrogating why is it that we afford rights to some people and other people we go you can place them in that environment outside of the normal order of things. Okay, Steph Bowden, thank you very much indeed. Ben Rawlins is the author of City of Thorns, a tale about Dadaab refugee camp in northern Kenya that's home to hundreds of thousands of Somali refugees, many who have been there for more than a generation. Ben, we often think of refugee camps as temporary, don't we? But Dadaab is really quite the opposite. It's been there for 25 years, 26 years now. You have three generations who have been born and raised in, in the camp. And it shows no signs of going anywhere because all of the structural reasons why the camp is necessary are, are not changing. The war is still in Somalia. Kenya doesn't want to allow in refugees to integrate and the rest of, wo of the world doesn't want to look after them either. So I see no situation where the city is going anywhere anytime soon. You just refer to it as a city. It, paint us a picture of what Dadaab is like. Well, if you imagine um, a sort of stereotypical slum where everything is made of recycled and found materials like wood, um, spars, tin sheets, and this is spread over an area of 50 square miles in the middle of the desert where it's 40 degrees in the dry season, you get some sort of picture perhaps. And then imagine that this place has been there for three generations and of course people have been to school, they go to hospital, there's a market, there are cinemas and youth centres and everything that you'd expect people to establish when they've been somewhere for a while. And yet, unlike other cities, this is somewhere where, for the vast majority of people, they can't actually ever leave. No, exactly, because Kenya doesn't allow refugees to come down into Kenya to leave the northern area. They can, of course, voluntarily go back to Somalia, to the war zone, but there's not many that want to do that. And the only legal way out is if you get resettlement through the UN quota system. But as we all know, that's under extreme pressure. And the UN moves about a thousand people a year um, when the birth rate in the camp is a thousand a month. So what can people actually do when they're there? How can they actually live ordinary lives? Well, that what they try and do is live a kind of semblance of an ordinary life because there are so many restrictions. So you can't formally work. Um, you can't work for the UN or any other agency. The only employment is in the black market. So there's this huge thriving black market that relies on smuggling, that relies on supplying needs in the camp, like growing small-scale vegetables, small shops, things like that, a bit of mechanics, construction. But it's very minor um, and there's, it's a small amount of money. At the same time, people want to go to school, they want to advance. So you have this strange scenario where some, for example, one of the people in my book, Tawane, has been through secondary school. He's got degrees and diplomas, but when he comes out the other end, he's reached this sort of glass ceiling. There's no real employment for him as a professional man. 
Um, so you have this kind of very weird um, world which looks a bit like our world and yet is very different. How have either UN agencies or aid agencies or indeed the Dubs residents themselves tried to change the way the camp works within those boundaries that you've just talked about? Well, the UN has tried to afford a, a, a level of self-determination to the refugees. So they have a kind of democratic system where every 50 to 60 households has its own representative, each block, and then each section has their own representatives. And it's a bit like um, the sort of the British colonial regime where you had these advisory assemblies like the Legislative Council or the Executive Council, which would um, provide advice to the governor, but the governor was ultimately autocratic. And that's kind of how the democratic system works in the camp. So people have some voice, but it's limited. The refugees themselves, of course, are an endless source of innovation and, uh, and creativity. So they have evolved their own culture, their own clubs, their own soccer leagues to try and build a life within the constraints that they have. Um, and of course, everybody's trying to desperately to get jobs in the black market to get some cash. Um, and the other thing they do is they sort of subvert the, the UN structures uh, to get things that they want. So if you have your food rations, the quickest way to get money is actually to sell them, to monetize them so that then you can have some cash that you can exercise some some decision over if you want to buy new shoes or make a phone call or whatever. So the refugees are very ingenious. They find ways of, of creating their own lives within these structures. The UN is less um, flexible. It's no surprise to learn. Um, but they have tried to encourage livelihoods to you know, allow people to, to grow their own food and things like that. But they're very limited and, and generally they're not that sustainable. How can a camp like the Dub be fixed? I mean, is a camp even the right way to go? I mean, let's start with, with the first principles. Camps are actually more or less illegal. Under the Refugee Convention, you're supposed to allow refugees the right to move and work and live in the society on equal terms with the people uh, amongst whom they've sought asylum. So that's the basic principle of refugee law, which most countries violate most of the time. So let's start with the, with the, with the fact that refugee camps themselves actually shouldn't really exist. The reason they exist is because societies want to keep refugees apart. And if they haven't got the resources to help refugees or they choose not to help refugees and they invite the UN to do that job for them, then the easiest way for the UN to sort the sheep from the goats is to go and help the refugees in a discrete place where they are separated. So for me, the, the, the real way that, to, to fix refugee camps is for them not to exist in the first place. And there are plenty of countries that do pursue that kind of policy. Um, Lebanon, for example, has very minimal numbers in camps. Most people are integrated into um, urban settings. Uganda has been very good at allowing freedom of movement among refugees. Some countries are better than others. There are lots of different arrangements around the world. But I think as soon as you set a camp up, it becomes self-perpetuating. And, and all the sort of pathologies and problems associated with camps are kind of inevitable. They will flow from that decision. Which is why it's kind of mad that the European Union is giving Turkey three billion to start building camps now, because those camps will never be permanent. As soon as you put um, a large number of people in one place, they will have start establishing structures and economies, which then, of course, become very hard to abandon later on. Ben Rawlins, thank you very much indeed. 
as Ben Rawlins was just saying, their camps aren't necessarily the answer, but there are new ideas in this field. Killian Kleinschmidt was the director of the Zatari camp in Jordan, home to tens of thousands of Syrian refugees. Now he's a social entrepreneur and government advisor thinking about how the camp can be reformed. One idea, a refugee city. I was in, in Venice the other day and it occurred to me that Venice, yeah, Venice is one of the most beautiful refugee cities ever created. They run away from the barbarians, the Huns, they, they build a safe area in the middle of the sea. So, I mean, it's an example of how people moved on. In modern times, and uh, that is after the Second World War, we have looked at refugees at large as, well, a good refugee is a returning refugee. That's, I mean, sounds and is very good to believe in volunteer return as the most preferred option. Yeah, everybody wants to be returned home. Everybody wants to recover um, his and her rights. But in a way, isn't that also closing the door to, well, wherever you are, to be part of that society, to be economically, socially integrated? And uh, But it doesn't exclude that one day you recover your rights. So I think we need to sort of change our narrative here a lot and basically approach it from another angle and say, well, you guys are here now. Um, yeah, no, no, nothing prevents you from going back, but because you're here now, we're investing in, in infrastructure, we're investing in services, there are more people, demographics have changed, so let's move on. Um, let's then talk about these solutions. You've talked about the idea of refugee cities. How would these work in practice? Well, let's take the Bangladesh example. We have a country which has, uh, which is anyway experiencing massive displacement of populations away from the coastal areas to the cities because of uh, climate change, rising ocean levels and so on. At the same time, there's now 600,000 potentially more people from uh, Myanmar coming over, the Rohingya. So isn't that the right moment? Not to talk about refugee cities per se, but talking about special development zones, which is beyond what we uh, have seen so far in special economic zones, special development zones would include um, uh, special arrangements for governance and uh, really sort of being a best practice when it comes to governance management and um, sustainability in terms of economics, ecological sustainability and social um, inclusion. And so Bangladesh needs investment rather than charity. And, and that's, it's, it's a huge potential. And I mean, again, the, the type of, of investment needed is actually not that shocking. I mean, if you look into the proposals which have been made for new cities and, and all sorts of places and the developments being undertaken, it's not such an enormous amount. And if you compare that to the humanitarian uh, money which will be wasted over the next decades, I think it's worthwhile to think about it. Does this involve quite a big shift in mindset amongst people like yourself who work on refugee issues to to step away from the idea of, uh, well, we will provide camps and we will provide uh, health care and water and sanitation and food um, to a situation where you're saying, actually, we need to think more about creating economic opportunities for these people so that uh, they are able to find opportunities for themselves in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's not only about these people, those those newcomers. It's about everybody, I mean, who is in need. I mean, again, let's take Bangladesh. Maybe 10 million people, maybe 15 million people need to 
to have maybe even more have to to have better better living conditions and have to have a proper proper access to services and infrastructure and so on so that's it's it's something different from simply targeting um, I mean newcomers and saying well because we got new newcomers let's move on um, in fact um, helping this community that society to to develop and that means that means really being bold and and, and getting away from um, the humanitarian drip yes it requires big rethinking it requires boldness it requires not the humanitarian agencies being in charge it means uh, they will have to be developers um, as tough as that may sound developers in charge of developing new zones which have a different um, and a different approach than than we have seen so far and just finally Killian is there anywhere where you've seen something even remotely like this so far well I mean uh, for me uh, looking into history looking prior to to the let's say modern way of looking at aid and looking at refugees and displacement, uh, we have always done a full integration. When there were new people coming somewhere, municipalities were, were building new settlements, new housing, um, looked into affordable housing. I mean, uh, take simply um, the post-war uh, Europe. I mean, Germany receiving 13 million people displaced from eastern parts and so on. They built housing, they integrated them. Yes, it's maybe not foreigners, not strangers in that sense. But um, we do have best practice when it comes to this. So let's get back to this. Let's look into that and move on. And that means looking into better governance, different uh, types of managing populations at large, um, getting away from um, looking only at the nation state, uh, moving more to, towards support to municipalities. There are a number of, of proposals in that direction which have been made also by others. I think that would be the, the, the best to look at that in the 21st century. So, Steph, have we fixed it? I think we found two possible ways forward, one of them slightly more radical than the other, right? Yes, I think the idea of creating whole new cities that are not just for refugees, but for local citizens too, in the way that Killian was describing, would be, I can see how that would be difficult to get off the ground. I do, but equally I think what we've got a sense of from all of the people we've spoken to is that the situation as it stands is unsustainable. Yeah, but just because something's unsustainable doesn't mean it won't continue and continue and continue. It's been unsustainable for years. It's, yeah, things are unsustainable, somehow (laughs) managed to sustain, despite the fact that they shouldn't. I think what we're getting at is how difficult the politics behind this are. I mean, we can talk about resources on the ground and what the UN are doing and how to get food and medicine to people. And those are really important questions. But there's a bigger question of borders and belonging and who is allowed to move where and be helped by whom. Then unless you have those top level negotiations, and I hope it's not too radical an idea to say, until you question what some of those categories are, I'm not sure we're going to move beyond where we're at. No, true. I mean, it's this isn't just about having aid experts come up with the best possible way to help people fleeing from horrors. It's there's there's all this politics behind it of, you know, what individual citizens in another country far away think about the idea of someone else coming from somewhere else uh, arriving in their country. And there's definitely if we're thinking about globalization and the 20th 
century is the first century of globalization and how the camp springs up as part of that we can see it's part of a bigger shift in how we negotiate things worldwide so where do you start fixing that <laughs> i don't know i don't know where you start fixing it from but it was quite interesting the, the point that ben made about the fact that camps shouldn't actually exist in the first place and I'd never really thought that through before. I've seen so many of these over the years and you know, always assumed that there was sort of a, you know, a, a sense of goodwill behind it. This is the right thing to do. We should have a camp because these people have fleed and we should look after them. As he points out, actually, technically, legally, there shouldn't be a camp. It's You should be helping people in your country, not sticking them in a field. Well, I think both of those things are true. I think the way they're set up and managed means there are plenty of charitable people who are there to meet an urgent need. But I agree with Ben that it's a need that shouldn't exist. And it sort of takes us back to Hannah Arendt and the theory side of it, of going, actually, you should be able to have people return home or find a place for themselves without it becoming this kind of constant state of exception where you have three generations who have been outside of a homeland. That was rather a depressing note to end on, but as we're talking about refugee camps, there's probably not much of a better note to end on. That's it for How to Fix. My thanks to Ben Rawlins, Killian Kleinschmidt and of course Steph Boland. How to Fix was recorded and edited by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio here in the heart of Westminster. For further reading, go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash howtofix. If you liked what you heard, please do us a favour and rate us on iTunes. And also you did it last week. Thank you very much indeed. It really does help. I'm Steve Bloomfield. That was How to Fix. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.